Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to be talking about domestic violence. So first, just want to issue a trigger warning that we will be addressing things, including emotional, physical, and sexual violence within relationships. But this is such an important topic for us to cover. And unfortunately, it is a newsworthy item. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that's happening every single day in relationships. And we've never really talked about domestic violence before on the podcast. And partially we're talking about this because of the incident that happened between NFL player Ray Rice and his then fiance, Janae Palmer, um, in which a video surfaced of Rice dragging Palmer unconscious out of an elevator. Um, but not just the incident itself, but also the huge conversation that came up in the media around that incident. Um, and what sort of rose to the surface in all of this was sort of a a general cry from people in the media just demanding to know why Janae Palmer, now Janae Palmer Rice, would stay in the relationship. And there seemed to be like a huge misunderstanding about domestic violence in general and victims of domestic violence in particular. So we definitely wanted to address a lot of these issues. And there were also conversations, too, that came up about it in terms of men as victims of domestic violence as well, because in that elevator video, Janae does strike Ray Rice at one point. And we're not going to get into the details of the video. Um, All this to say, there is a lot to talk about because... If there is anything that all of these conversations about the NFL and issues of domestic violence have brought to the surface is the fact that there is a lot of misunderstanding Mm -hmm. about domestic violence. So, first of all, we just want to establish the fact of how common it is and why it can be problematic to just frame the conversation surrounding the NFL as a scandal, as though it's just one isolated incident or a few incidents that have happened. Because in the United States, more than one in three women and more than one in four men have experienced rape, physical violence and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Right. And so it's definitely worth throwing out those numbers because... I feel like, you know, it's it's just not something that's talked about. I mean, it's talked about in terms of victims' rights and things like that and criminal prosecution, and you do hear about it in the news sometimes, especially if it's someone famous like an NFL player. But in general, domestic violence is hugely underreported. And this is coming from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They reported that only about a quarter of all physical assaults, about a fifth of all rapes, and about half of all stockings perpetuated against women by intimate partners are reported to police. And that's another thing about domestic violence, too, is that it seems like we only hear about it and we only begin talking about it more openly after the fact. Right. So let's talk about what happens before the fact. Let's talk about risk factors. And a lot of this is coming from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which has begun collecting data and actually issued its first major report on domestic violence in the U.S. in 2010. So just some of the risk factors involved with uh, people who are victims and perpetuators of domestic violence include things 
like low self-esteem, low income, young age. Mm -hmm. Actually, women in their early 20s from 20 to 25 are the likeliest victims of domestic violence. Uh, There are issues such as heavy alcohol and drug use, depression, obviously aggressive behavior in your youth, having few friends, being socially isolated. Mm-hmm. Right. And a big one is being a victim of physical or psychological abuse previously in your life. That is consistently one of the strongest predictors of perpetration of domestic violence, but also experiencing poor parenting or strong physical discipline as a child. And there are risk factors as well, just within the relationship dynamics such as marital conflicts or instability. Uh, There might be issues of dominance and imbalance of power in relationships to where you have one partner who is heavily and abusively dominant over the other. Economic stress is something that often comes up with this as well, just adding to the conflict and instability within relationships and also unhealthy family relationships and interactions. There's definitely a, a strong social component to it as well in terms of either the unstable relationships surrounding you or just blatant isolation. Right. And if we move outward a little bit, there are definitely strong community and larger societal factors that affect domestic violence as well. Um, things like poverty and issues associated with poverty, such as overcrowding. But also issues like having low social capital, a lack of institutions and connections in your community that can support you and your family, um, and just weak community sanctions against intimate partner violence. So basically, if your neighbors or family or friends are unwilling or unable to step in when they witness violence happening. And there's also the big issue of traditional gender norms. Um, this issue of violent masculinity in particular is something that researchers look into a lot. So uh, particularly in heterosexual relationships, which, and we'll get into this more, a lot of domestic violence research is focused in a very heteronormative framework, usually with the hyper-dominant male partner having very traditional gendered beliefs of, for instance, women needing to stay at home, not enter the workforce, being submissive, sort of men being the heads of the household, but to an abusive and potentially violent extent. And if we're looking at the different types of violent acts that constitute intimate partner or and domestic violence, those include physical violence, sexual violence, threats of physical or sexual violence, stalking and psychological aggression by a current or former intimate partner. And when you look at the gender divide in terms of abuse threatened or suffered, women are likelier to experience multiple forms of abuse. Among victims of intimate partner violence, more than one in three women experienced multiple forms of rape, stalking, or physical violence. And 92.1% of male victims of domestic violence experienced physical violence alone. And if we just look at sexual violence, uh, nearly one in 10 women has been raped by an intimate partner in her lifetime. And when it comes to sexual violence other than rape, uh, meaning vaginal penetration, you know, against your consent, an estimated 16.9% of women and 8% of men have experienced it at some point in their lifetime. And we're, we're getting into all of these Details in terms of the different types of violence that can occur, because I think it's important to understand 
just how what all constitutes domestic violence, because I think that a lot of times we just assume that it's limited to someone punching some someone else. Right. But there's so much more to it than that. Yeah. So if you look at severe physical violence, for instance, by an intimate partner, one in four women and one in seven men have suffered severe physical violence. But if you look at stalking, for instance, which is not something that we stereotypically associate with domestic violence, 10.7 percent of women and 2.1 percent of men have experienced stalking. And psychological aggression is a huge factor of this and definitely one that tends to be left out of our you know, sort of common framework of domestic violence, of thinking of it as something that is very physical. But there's definitely the psychological aspect to it as well, as over 48% of both men and women have experienced that kind of emotional and psychological abuse. And getting back to the age factor, most of this abuse first takes place before age 25. Right. And sort of driving home how pervasive domestic violence, intimate partner violence is. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime in this country. And the U.S. has the highest rate of intimate partner homicide among the world's wealthiest 25 countries. That amounts to over 16,000. That's actually 16,800 homicides every year because of intimate partner violence. And when it comes to female homicides in the U.S., almost a third of those were killed by an intimate partner. And 3.1% of male homicides in the U.S. were committed by a female intimate partner. And again, that those statistics are clearly focusing on heterosexual relationships. But there has been more emerging data and research and also outreach toward the LGBT community because they're not immune from domestic violence as well. It's important to acknowledge that violence does happen within these relationships because the fact that our domestic violence framework and, and resources, too, are often focused on straight couples. That means that there tend to be a lot of limited resources mm-hmm. for LGBT victims, especially transgender victims of violence. Right. And so this whole framework that Kristen's talking about, it's just the idea of the woman being the battered party and the man being the abuser. And that tends to make it hard for either one to find help in a same-sex relationship because they're often faced with attitudes from law enforcement or other community services that basically, if you're two guys, just work it out. Just fight and get it over with. Or if you're two women, well, two women don't hit each other. Exactly. And to that point, in a 2013 CDC report, uh, they said, quote, little is known about the national prevalence of intimate partner violence, sexual violence, and stalking among lesbian, gay, and bisexual men and women in the United States. But from the data they have collected so far, it's clear that more research needs to be done into certain kinds of relationship dynamics because, for instance, bisexuals have higher rates of experiencing domestic violence. Um, 75% of them, at least according to data from the CDC, have been with a violent partner, as opposed to 46% of lesbian women and 43% of straight women. Uh, When it comes to men, for bisexual men, that number was 47%. And for gay men, it was 40% and 21% for straight men. So 
statistically there is a bit of a hierarchy, but again, in the CDC's own words, little is still known about what exactly is going on within those communities because it's only been within the past few years that they've even started paying closer attention to it. Right, and one strong piece of evidence that... We can see that same-sex couples, bisexual couples are getting more attention in this arena is when President Obama re-signed the Violence Against Women Act. It did include a section about same-sex couples offering protection. But we do, I think, have a long way to go because in terms of lesbian couples, for instance, both women could end up in a shelter, for instance, you know, one woman could be abused and could be seeking help and shelter, whereas the other woman could lie and say that she was also abused and end up infiltrating the same the same shelter. And when it comes to shelters, that finding that kind of resource, I mean, first of all, beds are scarce mm-hmm. in shelters to begin with. But for transgender victims of domestic violence, finding a shelter that will accept them can be even more challenging because some of them are not going to be as opening and welcome to uh, transgender victims because of rules that they might have in place or they Mm -hmm. might be uh, religious organizations that might not be so keen on that. So there's definitely more work that needs to be done in that regard. But we also need to to talk about women not only as victims in need of shelter and resources, but we also need to talk about women as abusers. Yeah, and part of the problem is that um, if a woman is the perpetrator of violence, um, it tends to be not even just ignored, but laughed off saying, you know, oh, well, you obviously can't handle your woman, you know, if, if you're letting her do this to you. And this was shown to be the case in an experiment. This happened in London. This was mankind's hashtag violence is violence project where they showed and they caught on camera a man shoving a woman. And people's reactions around them were like, they immediately stepped in and said, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Stop hurting her. When the tables were turned and they had their actress shove the actor and get violent with him and he pulled his hair and shoved him into a fence and whatever, people were just kind of laughing about it. Which only serves to reinforce those heteronormative, like hyper-masculine gender roles of, man, you need to be, you know, taking care of your woman. If you can't keep her in line, then what's wrong with you? I mean, those are the same, that's the same kind of thinking that feeds into man on woman domestic violence. Right. But the thing is, too, when you start Googling around for statistics, for instance, on women as abusers, men as victims of domestic violence, again, sticking within this heteronormative framework, what comes up a lot are arguments made, particularly by self-labeled men's rights activists, that... The societal deck is stacked against men because domestic violence does happen to men, but a lot of the resources out there are clearly geared toward women because feminists from the get-go in the 70s when second-wave feminism really started kicking up, feminists made domestic violence one of their major platforms. Mm -hmm. And so there are these... Arguments to come up a lot that that that's sort of a conspiracy in a way to keep men down and frames domestic violence 
assistance and resources as a zero sum game Mm -hmm. that men need more attention and that women are really just trying to take away uh, more of men's rights. And I don't want to get deep into that, but I just wanted to acknowledge that because it is something that will come up very quickly in your Google results when you start looking for that. Um, but the truth of the matter is when you start looking into those dynamics of female perpetrated domestic violence, there do tend to be different kinds of relationship factors involved, which are also very important to understand. Right, exactly. Yeah, it is not all black and white, and it's important to look at what's going on behind the statistics. And so we looked at a report uh, by Michael S. Kimmel, who's a sociology professor at SUNY Stony Brook in 2001, um, that talked about how much of woman-on-man violence is committed in self-defense and actually ends up putting that woman at greater risk of injury herself because she is far likelier to end up getting hurt if the man retaliates. And this is this really ties into what was going on with the Ray Rice, Janae Palmer Rice incident with a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in the sports community saying, oh, well, Janae hit Ray first. He retaliated, but... A lot of that has to do with that if you are a victim with an abuser and you're trying to defend yourself, things can spiral out of control. Well, and when you are, I mean, just that physical imbalance in terms of her physical strength versus his physical strength, if she hits him, his retaliation to her clearly is going to be far more severe just by sheer fact of muscle mass. Right. And um, women's violence toward men is certainly different from that of men committed against women because of that whole weight and strength factor. It is far less injurious and far less likely to be motivated by attempts to dominate or terrorize the partner because, you know, Kristen mentioned earlier that whole stereotypical uh, gender dominance issue in or that exists in a relationship. And so a woman is not likely to be acting from a place of domination. Yeah. And again, this is not to minimize men being victims of domestic violence. Again, I mean, I think the psychological and emotional mm-hmm. abuse is a huge factor to this as well, because when it comes to that kind of abuse, there is gender parity. Unfortunately, yeah. just over 48 percent, in fact, of both men and women have experienced that. And again, one in seven men have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner. So this isn't to say or try to erase those statistics or negate the issues uh, you know that men are facing and negate the fact that there are some women who are simply out and out blatant abusers. Right. Some women are violent and are trying to terrorize their partners. Right. But I think it's important to talk about the nuances within that especially because there was so much hue and cry, unfortunately, when it came to that Ray Rice video of people saying, well, she hit him first. 
And like you said, Caroline, it's not it, it, again and again and again. It's important to remember that it's not all black and white. It's never black and white in these kinds of situations. Right. Exactly. And um, all of this is backed up by a meta analysis uh, from October 2008 in the journal Trauma, Violence and Abuse that found that female perpetrated domestic violence is likeliest to take the form of emotional abuse. And I'm wondering, just from my own personal perspective, if that's not the case simply because of weight and strength difference. If that's just not the weapon that women have at their disposal. I mean, I have a guy friend who was the victim of extreme emotional and psychological abuse by a female partner. And, you know, I would certainly never want to downplay the suffering that he went through. But, you know, it's not that he was hit or beat, beaten or experienced physical violence necessarily at her hand. Well, and one thing that I read in prepping for this podcast, too, was that the psychological aggression and abuse perpetrated by women might be more of the the go-to form of it, too, because women tend to be more socialized. I mean, just think sure. about it in terms of our female adolescent relationships, like the yeah. type of abuse that tends to happen is the more socialized kind of bullying. Girls usually don't aren't as likely to say fist fight as they are to just really enact like psychological warfare. Right. On each so other. nasty notes and talking behind backs instead of a fist fight in the cafeteria. Right. Right. Well, and I think too that the prevalence of that psychological and emotional abuse does add another layer of nuance to the the lack of resources for men who are in those kinds of abusive relationships because there is no physical evidence. And it is worth noting that a lot of these patterns of intimate partner violence among women as perpetrators often start at an early age, but the data do suggest that girls who perpetrate intimate partner violence may themselves experience more violent or frequent intimate partner violence victimization. Now, when it comes to the portrayal of women as the perpetrators, there was a study about this that came out in September 2012 in the journal Violence Against Women. And it talked about how women are three times likelier than men to be arrested when they were construed as the perpetrator. And that might possibly be because typically our, again, our framework is of the male abuser mm-hmm. and the, the female victim. Mm-hmm. And what they talked a lot about in this paper is how because of that gendered framework, which goes back in a long t- for a long time in history, that women in these situations are usually portrayed in these kinds of court cases as pathological perpetuators of violence, whereas men are often portrayed if, if they are, you know, the abusers, they are then portrayed as the batterers because it's almost as if it's such a, a violation of this like nastiest kind of gender norm, if mm-hmm. you want to even call it that, that there's even a separate kind of language to describe the woman as the abuser. Right. And researchers Ellen Pence and Shamita Das Dasgupta talk a lot about this whole division, this language division and the meaning behind it. And they talk about how the word itself, battering, signifies a pattern of things like coercive control and intimidation and oppression that women suffer at the hands of men in their lives 
whereas the idea of pathological violence comes from, well, the woman is doing it because she's abusing substances. She's suffering a mental illness or a physical disorder. Maybe she has neurological damage and then uses physical violence against others, including intimate partners. And they write, it is exceptional for the woman to achieve the kind of dominance over her male partner that characterizes Battering, And so we see these gender divides, even in the very language that we use, whether it's medically or in the legal system, to describe violence perpetrated against men versus women. Well, and again and again and again, too, what keeps coming to my mind is how so much of this subconscious or at least unconscious framing and language that's used again, does such a disservice to men because it constantly assumes that they need no sort of psychological background or impetus for being violent. It's simply within their natures, whereas women usually need some, you know, when this happens, people are looking for like, oh, well, what what could be the issue? Why? What could possibly provoke her to do this? And that's part of the reason why there's actually this term, battered women's syndrome, which is a defense developed in the mid-1970s by Dr. Lenore Walker, to help combat the sex bias present in criminal law, particularly in the case of women killing their male intimate partners um, who had been, I mean, it was largely cases of self-defense when it comes to this battered women's syndrome. Uh, And there was a paper that we found about this in the American Bar Association talking about how in these cases, if, a woman who had been previously abused by her partner at one point, like kills her partner there, like they needed some kind of, again, some kind of like psychological explanation for what was going on. Right. And I mean, I, I think it's crazy to even think of a time when the law did not even recognize this, this idea of self-defense in an abusive, intimate partner relationship. Well, because for a long time, the law didn't even acknowledge or feel like it was its place to step into domestic violence to begin with. But it's interesting in this, in this paper, it also talks about how the fact that this thing is called a syndrome, battered women's syndrome, definitely pathologizes victimhood. And so it led to, yes, a lot of women you know, not being sent to prison for murdering their abusers, but also being excused simply by the for the idea that they are irrational or incapacitated. But the authors of the paper certainly do not argue that we should do away with this idea, this defense, this concept. We obviously still need an idea of self-defense, whether it's in an intimate partner relationship or not. Right, right. And I mean, and again and again, I feel like I'm just repeating myself so many times in this episode because it's yet another layer of gray within all of it. Right. And when we look at the battered women's syndrome issue, this defense and acting, women acting in self-defense and killing their abuser, this is something that Michael S. Kimmel also talked about. He's a sociology professor that we mentioned earlier, and he wrote in his 2001 report that men actually benefit from efforts to reduce male violence against women. He wrote that it turns out that efforts to protect women in the U.S. have had the effect of reducing the murder rate of men by their partners by almost 70 percent over the past 24 years. So if you protect women, you're also protecting men. Imagine that. Well, and that's another reason why domestic violence 
resources and assistance and legal protections should not be framed as some kind of zero sum game because there, you know, clearly there are benefits to it that it, it's not just helping women. Do there need to be more resources out there for men as victims of domestic violence? Absolutely. Do there need to be more resources out there for LGBT victims of domestic violence? Absolutely. But again, it seems like taking resources away from straight women is not going to help anyone in the long run. Right. So we now need to talk about, though, what happens when women don't seek out the resources or if they do and then they return to their abuser, because that is something that happens a lot. And like Caroline mentioned at the top of the podcast, one reason we wanted to have this conversation today is because of the why I stayed hashtag that surfaced on Twitter in response to a lot of people talking about, you know, Janae Palmer Rice saying, well, why is she even in this? relationship to begin with. She stuck mm-hmm. around. So we're going to talk about the cycle of abuse and why victims return to their abusers when we come right back from a quick break. So what I think a lot of people don't realize and what a lot of people also don't understand is how difficult it can be for a victim to leave the abuser. And I think that's evident in a common statistic that it takes a victim seven times to ultimately and finally leave an abusive relationship. And you can see that ignorance of this cycle of abuse that happens that we're going to talk about in more detail whenever these kinds of cases of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, uh, become national news, not just in the case of Ray Rice, but also going back a few years to Rihanna and Chris Brown, where there were the same kinds of, well, what is she even doing in this relationship? Why, why is she staying? But the fact of the matter is, it's not just about escaping the physical abuse, because in the process of that abuse happening, there is a lot of psychological underpinnings that make it hard and sometimes impossible for some victims or seemingly impossible for some victims to leave because it sets up this pendulum in a way of pain that swings between being fearful, being angry, being resentful of your abuser, but then going into feelings of guilt, shame, anxiety of thinking, well, maybe I did something. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, what if people find out? How am I going to live without this person? Right. And all that definitely ties into issues of codependency because you're thinking this person is suffering. This person is unhappy and scared and angry. How can he or she stay with this abusive partner? And, and when you are in a codependent relationship and you are the codependent party, you feel that it's almost your responsibility to fix or to save the person that you're with and that if only I give him or her my full support and do everything I can to help him or her, then this situation will get better. You can fix the person. Right. And you just can't. Yeah. And um, I mean, and I think, too, the fact that it's such a taboo topic also feeds into this psychological cycle of abuse. So in terms of the cycle of abuse, helpguide.org actually laid out a very clear picture of what that means. When you start the cycle with abuse, this is when basically one of the partners is sort of issuing a power play designed to show who is boss. They're being aggressive. They're belittling their partner or acting in a violent way. 
so after that initial abuse happens, the abusive partner might feel a sense of guilt, might be concerned about what he or she has done, concerned about losing the other partner. And so then a period of excuses and rationalization often takes place of the partner trying to rationalize the violence that has taken place, perhaps placing blame mm-hmm. on the other person, on the victim for you know asking for or bringing on or triggering that kind of violent behavior, which is then followed by a period of quote unquote normalcy or what's sometimes dubbed the honeymoon phase where the abuser does everything in his or her power to regain control and keep that partner in the relationship, which might mean acting like nothing has ever happened, just sweeping it under the rug or really turning up the charm, like really promising to change and going out of his or her way to be sweet. Right. And then this leads to a terrible period that I really was not aware of before I looked at this cycle of abuse chart. But it's the fantasy and planning phase where basically once the abuser has secured you back in this relationship through this honeymoon period of being nice and normal, so to speak, he or she begins to fantasize about abusing you again, the way that it'll happen, um, making a plan for turning this fantasy of abuse into reality, basically looking around at anything, you know, quote unquote wrong this victim might do and then lashing out. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's followed then, yeah, by the setup of some kind of situation. It's that rationalization phase mm-hmm. again, but almost in reverse, rationalizing the pre-planning for something that he or she can then lash out at. And the cycle then begins anew. And a lot of times the abuser, after it happens, will be apologetic and will be act even lovingly toward the other person, which only reinforces a lot of the codependency. Uh, there might be, you know, he or she might beg the other person to stay to help them, mm-hmm. to fix them. Don't let an, it, it, other people know because it is so taboo and not talked about what will mm-hmm. people think. Yeah. And, you know, Kristen and I have talked about gaslighting on the podcast before. That's definitely part of the cycle. And gaslighting, of course, refers to uh, just basically, long story short, making your partner feel crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, they have legitimate feelings or thoughts or concerns and you basically downplay them and say, oh, you're nuts. And that's gaslighting. And that plays into both emotional and physical manipulation and violence. And the why I stayed hashtag offers so many examples of how what, what that cycle of abuse really looks like in the real world. And it was started by writer Beverly Gordon in response to that victim blaming directed at Janae Palmer Rice. And so one of her tweets of why I stayed was he said he would change. He promised it was the last time I believed him. He lied. Right. And other tweets say things like, my mom had three young kids, a mortgage and a part time job. My dad had a full time paycheck, our church behind him and a bigger fist. Another tweet was because he never hit me and I didn't think verbal abuse and emotional manipulation was considered an abusive relationship. And so things like that. I mean, just in those three tweets, you see the importance of education about abuse and abusive relationships and the different forms it can take and the importance of providing support to people who need it. Absolutely, because it is clear that they're in that. Tragically, there because we don't talk about it enough. Clearly, there's not even a recognition of what those kinds of violent behaviors 
really are and all the different forms that they can take. Right. But what we also know is that not only does it often take a long time for victims to finally and completely leave their abusers, which can be hard because, again, remember that stalking is a a violent behavior as well. That's part of this, too. So sometimes they have to geographically get as far away from Mm -hmm. their, you know, ex-partner as possible. But even after the violence stops, there are long-term health effects. Right. If you look at the psychological fallout, specifically among female victims, 72% said they were fearful as a result of intimate partner violence. 62% were concerned for their safety. 62% also experienced at least one post-traumatic stress disorder symptom after the fact. And 28% missed at least one day of work or school. So it is worth repeating that the fallout from domestic violence is not always going to be visible. And in addition to those psychological repercussions, there are also long-term health effects that a lot of people don't recognize either, including doctors. Um, and we read about this in a really in-depth article in Moore magazine called Domestic Violence, A Hidden Cause of Chronic Illness. And the author writes, domestic violence has an insidiously long half-life. And by that, she means that it has high risks of chronic health problems, including arthritis and hormonal disorders, asthma, diabetes, hypertension, chronic pain, severe headaches, and irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, this article, I found it to be incredibly disturbing because this is something that I literally have never read before. Same the, here. Yeah, the long-term health effects. And and you hear Kristen say things like arthritis, hormonal disorders, asthma, and how could that possibly come out of domestic violence? But when you think about You've probably read articles or, or heard podcasts on the effects of various types of stress and what happens to your body and your brain when you are under an incredible amount of stress over a long period of time. And domestic violence is a huge cause of this chronic stress. Basically, your fight or flight is in constant engagement and that can do horrible things to your body. Yeah, it actually trims the length of telomeres, which are protective caps on the ends of our chromosomes that affect how quickly our cells age. And under that kind of chronic stress that victims of domestic violence live with, even after the relationship is over, those telomeres tend to shorten. And which can lead to a shorter lifespan. Um, f- for another statistic, uh, victims of domestic violence spend 20% more on medical care than other women due to either outright injuries or chronic stress or terror. Right. And the CDC released a 2008 study looking at the medical costs that come out of this in the United States. And they estimated that those costs fall somewhere between $25 billion and $59 billion every year. And in addition to the, you know, the stress impacts on a biological level for a number of domestic violence victims, they might not get proper medical care when violent Incidents occur and that can have long lasting effects as well, or just simply have long lasting effects from 
having to their bodies having to sustain repeated acts of violence. So, mm-hmm. for instance, um, more magazine talked to the author of the memoir Crazy Love, which is all about this violent relationship that this woman was in. And, and she said that even today, decades down the line, she still has trouble with short term memory and arthritis in her shoulders, hands, wrists, joints and ankles, especially in the areas that he beat her. Right. And they talked to another woman who'd had six miscarriages and, you know, just thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what's wrong with me? What's going on with my body? And doctors told her that it was entirely possible that her endocrine system, her hormone system had been compromised by the brain damage that she had suffered repeatedly at the hands of her husband. And that was making it hard to carry a baby to term. Yeah, Michelle Black, who's an epidemiologist at the CDC, who was the lead author of a landmark 2011 report on domestic violence related illness, told More Magazine that your whole body is at risk. There is no organ that's immune from this kind of long term damage. Mm hmm. Right. And they talked about sort of the the biology behind this, and they refer to it as allostatic load, which is basically the fact that it's sort of an awful, terrible mental and emotional and physical cycle where you have these terrible things that happen to you, but you also have the memories of these terrible things that end up getting stored in the amygdala. These generate what's called cytokines. They're chemical messengers that elevate inflammation in nearly every system in your body. In response, your body ends up releasing cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So normally your body works to keep everything in balance, under control. But if these traumatic memories keep resurfacing and keep sounding the alarm bell for years after after the abuse is suffered, it generates way too much inflammation for your body to handle and your body loses the ability to regulate cortisol, the stress hormone. So you're under that constant level of stress. A lot of women also who have experienced domestic violence, and men too, I'm sure, uh, also carry along symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things can be very triggering that can set off that allostatic load. And Caroline, when I was reading this, the, I was thinking about the horrible irony of the fact that this entire conversation was spurred by domestic violence among NFL players in particular. Mm-hmm. And previously, the biggest controversy within the NFL has been the NFL having to take into account players having sustained years and years and years of violence and head injuries now dealing with similar long-term effects of this Mm -hmm. and the NFL having to take that into account and, you know, pay players for that kind of abuse that they suffered on the field. And these are the same kinds of symptoms and long-term and chronic health impacts that some of these women who are very much also connected to the NFL are dealing with as well. And Mm -hmm. similarly, something that we just don't think about or don't really understand as fully as we could, which is yet another reason why it's so important that we talk about this more and not just talk about it in reaction to these events happening. Yeah. Now, Kristen and I have given you a lot of information throughout this podcast, things that you should be aware of, but we do also have resources to give you as well. Um, in the U.S., you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233-SAFE. 
In the UK, you can call Women's Aid at 0808-2247. And worldwide, you can visit the International Directory of Domestic Violence Agencies for a global list of helplines and crisis centers. And male victims of abuse also have hotlines they can call. In the U.S. and Canada, there's the Domestic Abuse Helpline for Men and Women In UK, there's Mankind Initiative, and in Australia, there's the One in Three campaign. And we'll be posting links to all of these resources and all of these hotlines on our website, stuffmumnevertoldyou.com, so you can find them there as well. So we do want to hear from you about this issue. Um, Share whatever you're comfortable sharing with us and what you think would be helpful for our listeners to know as well. We weren't able to even talk about every single facet of domestic violence. So if there's something really important that we left out of the conversation, please fill us in. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Catherine who's writing us about our notorious RBG or Ruth Bader Ginsburg episode that we did a little while ago. She says, I work in theatrical costumes and wardrobe in Seattle, but a few summers ago was the assistant wardrobe supervisor at the Santa Fe Opera, the largest opera festival in the country, one of the largest in the world. Apparently, Justice Ginsburg is a huge opera fan and attends the festival every season, and the summer I was there was no exception. You can always tell when she's going to be in the theater that night because lots of security come through the backstage areas. Sometimes she will take a backstage tour and meet the singers, which is how I got to see her notoriousness in the flesh. I don't think of myself as getting starstruck, but what do you say to someone who has changed so much about our lives for the better? I went with, hello, that was good, right? Ugh. Well, keep up the good works, minty ladies. And thank you, Kate, you too. Well, I've got a letter here from Gia about our episode, The Grandmother Hypothesis. She writes, Ladies, I loved your Grandmother Hypothesis episode. I loved it so much, I told my Nana about it and then brought it with me to Sunday dinner so she could listen to it. She loved it and insisted I make her a tape so she could listen to it again. She has an iPod and a CD player, but she wanted a cassette. I made her a cassette. You don't argue with Grandma. She thinks that the studies you cited explained her need to feed. The part she liked the most about that episode was when you talked about the Chinese grandmothers because that is the way we lived. She also thought it was hilarious that people had to take classes to learn how to deal with whiny grandchildren. She just needed to make the face and hold up a wooden spoon. She never hit us with it, but it was implied. Also, we got biscotti and hugs when we stopped whining. I'm 32 years old. I moved out of the family building years ago and moved less than a city block away. My grandmother calls me every day to make sure I'm not hungry, to see if I need anything, and to tell me she loves me. She has a long list of those calls she makes every day, and every Sunday her table is loaded like Thanksgiving, and we have a house full of family. So thank you, Gia. Oh, and she also writes, Caroline, that if we're ever in Boston, there's a sweet old lady in the heart of the North End who would love to feed you till you burst. I will take you up on that offer just whenever I'm in Boston. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Gia. And thanks to everybody who's written to us. Again, our email address is momstuff 
at HowStuffWorks.com. And to find links to all of our social media, as well as all of our videos, blogs, as well as all of our podcasts, including this one, which will have all of the sources that we referenced, as well as links to all of those resources as well. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.